for the reading this morning is on page um, 843 in, in the Bible, and it's chapter 2, starting at verse 14 through to verse 26. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermionus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Let us come before our Lord now as uh, we think about this passage which is actually uh, quite a, a serious one as we see a bit of opposition uh, in this passage to God's, God's people. Let us come to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Our Lord, um, we thank you for this time now uh, that we can think carefully about your word. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand it, make sense of it and, uh, and put it into action in our lives. We pray for your help to do this. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, the, um, the passage today is a somewhat serious one. It's not all joy. We see that there's some opposition that uh, Timothy is faced with and Paul encourages him to, to tackle. And I think uh, we can relate to opposition as Christians, can't we, if we're seeking to be faithful to the Lord. Because seeking to live to please the Lord, it's not always popular, is it? And it seems to me, from what I've seen in the media, even globally, when Christians take a stand and raise their voices, there can sometimes be something of a backlash. In fact, uh, when Christians hold opinions that, that the Bible would express, they can be called haters. Living to please the Lord with a Christian approach to life isn't always popular. And in many ways, God's people 
can be tempted, can't they, to discard their Christian convictions and just go with what's popular. We can be tempted to uh, leave behind our, our convictions about what's right and what's wrong. We can be tempted to discard our convictions of what's pleasing to the Lord and what's not pleasing to the Lord. Christians, have you noticed, are not described as progressives. I sometimes wonder if people think we're more like going the way of the dodo bird. Even in uh, soap operas and on TV, Christians are often portrayed as bumbling buffoons, ridiculous but amusing people for their outdated views and their stupidity. Those of you who are familiar with an author called Jane Austen, uh, you might have heard a book called Pride and Prejudice. In it is a man called Mr Collins. He's, a, he's a, depicted as a Christian minister. And of course, he's always coming across as a, as a bit of a clown. He has some nice small talk around the dinner time and starts talking about the food on the table and comments on a potato and says, ah, yes, that potato is such an exemplary vegetable. <laughs> Christians are portrayed as those who are negative and imbeciles, not part of the intelligentsia, that is, the educated or intellectual people in a society or community. And so Christians can be tempted to discard their convictions about God and what is right in life. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just within the community. Even within the church, there can be pressure to drop the clear teaching from God's word about many matters, topics that might be unpopular. Christians can sometimes feel in the church it's hard to hold on to the things that are difficult to receive. And so we can feel at times both in society and even at times within the church, the groupthink, the temptation to please not the Lord, but to please people, to fit in with what is popular, to swim with the school of fish that's going with the flow instead of being like that pretty impressive fish, the trout, that goes against the stream. Well, how are we to handle ourselves this morning and in life when we find ourselves at odds with a prevailing worldview of atheistic secular humanism that both, on the one hand, denies that God is there and exists, and on the other hand, also hates him at the same time. How are we to manage as we seek to uphold a biblical perspective in life when we can find ourselves quite at odds with the rest of the community and sometimes even find ourselves at odds with those in the church? What does God's word say to us? What does it say to us today about how we should be living to please the Lord instead of living to simply be people pleasers. And you and I will be tempted to please people. Well, the first thing we see this morning is encouragement from God's word. 
and it is encouraging us to please the Lord with our words. That's the first thing we notice in this passage in verses 14. Paul tells Timothy to keep reminding, verse 14, keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. And he says in verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Paul's reminding Timothy and the next generation of leaders and also people like us, people who are God's people, to avoid quarrelling, avoid fighting over words. And it's good advice because Paul says there's risks in quarrelling over words. On the one hand, he's saying it has no value. It's, it doesn't go anywhere useful to, to start having a fight over, over words. And secondly, uh, it has an impact on other people too. It can ruin them. Timothy's got the role of setting forth the truth plainly. But some of the people that are in his church at the time they may not have even been interested in the truth being set forth plainly. They might have wanted to argue and quarrel over genealogies and things. Some of them might have preferred to have disputes and, and not really be teachable and accept the plain teaching of Scripture. And so Paul cautions Timothy about uh, what we used to say in the teaching world when you had a and a kid who is a bit unruly, uh, don't get into the ring with them. Don't fight over any of these words with them. It might be a situation where they, they, these people enjoy the disputes. And yet, if they're, not, if they're not having a teachable attitude to God's word, it's like a glass that's already been filled. You, you can't put any more water in it. In fact, as a uh, uni student, I remember uh, trying pretty hard to persuade one of my friends about a, a perspective from God's word, which I thought was, was pretty plain to see. Plain as the nose on your face, you might say. Uh, it was about the, the doctrine of Satan and the fact that uh, evil is a dimension of our universe and that there are both angels from God and these are, these are good things and yet there's an evil dimension and a name's given to the leader of that dimension, Satan or Lucifer. And uh, so I looked at some passages with my friend to persuade him that that Satan was real. Uh, but I found what seemed very plain for me to read, I mean, Satan's even mentioned in the, the passage we're looking at today, that it was too hard for him to accept that and said, no, there is no Satan, there's, no, there's only ourselves that tempts ourselves, there's no Satan. And I spoke to my minister at the time uh, about this kind of situation, thinking, well, what do I do here now? I'm looking at these things in God's Word, which seem to be pretty plain. And he reminded me of a passage like this one uh, where we note that at some point in the discussion there's, there's no, no point in trying to uh, drum it anymore. If somebody's not going to accept what's there, there's no point in aggravating them. But my minister told me that it was still good for me to be clear in my mind about what God's word taught. Even if this other person wasn't really accepting it, it was good for me to be clear. And so Paul also encourages Timothy to take 
a different path from quarrelling. He's to take a path that involves focusing on pleasing the Lord, focusing his efforts on handling God's word correctly. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, says Paul in verse 15. That literally, this is be diligent to present yourself approved to God. He's got to show that he's, uh, as much as it depends on him, he's tried and tested. He's not faulty before God in what he's seeking to do. And instead of quarrelling over words and getting into disputes, getting into the ring with those who don't really want to be teachable and, and submit to the truth of God's word, his job is to handle the word of truth correctly. And this is a, another way we could say this is to keep the message on a straight course. He's not to read his own ideas into the scripture. That's, that's not keeping the message on a straight course. So that's not handling the scriptures correctly, is it? To read our own ideas into it. Instead, to start with accepting that it is God's word, inspired by God. And so if that's the case, then the scriptures aren't to be argued with or quarrelled over, even if they say some things that are difficult to receive or things that aren't popular. In fact, God's written word is the final authority on matters of faith and conduct. And that's something that our confession uh, underscores and upholds. It says that the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. That's what our confession says about the Bible. And in short, we're to receive, believe and obey the scriptures because of their author. Their author is God and the scripture is his word to us. And so we have a very high view of the scriptures and we take it seriously and we'd sooner handle that carefully and receive it and please God rather than please people. Paul then continues to encourage God's people to please the Lord with their words and avoid idle chatter, godless chatter. We see that in verses 16 through to 19, if you're following along in your outline, if you've got the word open. Verse 16, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his and everybody, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Paul's encouraging Timothy and the people that Timothy is encouraging in ministry to avoid godless chatter which can spread. Now, the spreading of gangrene uh, in the body, it's, uh, it's not a nice image, is it? I think Paul chooses that image with a fair bit of thought, doesn't he? He doesn't 
He doesn't want this uh, godless chatter affecting the rest of the body of the church. And he gives us an example of um, godless chatter that's being uh, tossed around in verse 18, where some have said the resurrection's already taken place. Paul takes that as nonsense. And he notes that this kind of thing can also be destructive, overthrowing the faith of some, destroying or upsetting the faith of some. It's, it's bothering some people. It's, it's ruining their faith. Bad teaching doesn't lead to good results. Godless chatter is a departure from the truth and Hymenaeus and Philetus are described as those who have wandered away from the truth. They have swerved from the truth. This is almost like a picture of a boat that's heading somewhere and it's being blown off course. And it's heading for a shipwreck and disaster. And yet, we're still given some comfort in this passage that uh, not all is lost. God is still sovereign. We're told that he keeps the people that he's elected. They're not going to be deceived. And yet, at the same time, the church is challenged to keep thinking carefully about walking closely with the Lord. We see those things in verse 19. Nevertheless, God's solid, solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. His elect will make it to the end of the race. They will persevere and be there as Christians on the last day. But they're still challenged. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And so God's people are still uh, responsible to walk closely with the Lord, not to indulge in sin and have a license to sin, but to actually turn away from it. Well, how can we uh, handle God's word correctly, each one of us, and also see that our words are pleasing to the Lord, that we're not spreading idle chatter or godless chatter? And the first step is having the right attitude to God's word, isn't it? Uh, Jesus reminds us that we do not live on bread alone, but we live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We live on it because if we receive and believe God's word... It leads to life with God through faith in Jesus. Secondly, as we uh, handle God's word carefully and correctly, we're going to let God's word interpret itself. We're going to look at what one part of God's word says and, and see that and read that in the light of what the rest of God's word says. We'll look at various parts of the Bible to see what it says about truth. Thirdly, much more could be said. This sermon could go on for a long time, so I'm just going to make a couple of points, and some of them involve looking at passages within their context, within the context of the book, within the context of the Testament, within the context of the message and the storyline of the whole Bible, noting the kind of literature that we're dealing with. Is it a letter, like this one we're receiving today? Is it poetry? Is it law? Is it historical narrative? We've got to work hard at thinking what kind of genre of literature we're dealing with to handle it carefully. And furthermore, we need to look at what words meant, uh, both in the context that they were written and, and get a handle on those types of things. This is the kind of thing that we do in Bible study groups. We're trying to work hard to read the thought that's in the word 
that's being expressed to us. We're trying to get out of it what's actually being said. We're not trying to read a thought into it. In fact, this kind of approach to, to receive the message that's in the Word and to try to get a, feel the weight of that is quite a different approach to some others who want to spread godless chatter and who don't want to submit to what the Bible actually says. And I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a book written back in the 1980s called Holy Blood and Holy Grail. And uh, a Christian apologist called Josh McDowell makes a few remarks about this book, Holy Blood and Holy Grail, where the authors seem to be more committed to reading their ideas into the Bible than to getting a handle on what the Bible actually says about the truth about Jesus. Josh McDowell says, this book entices readers with a web of speculation regarding Mary Magdalene as the wife of Jesus and the possibility that they had as many as six children. Give me a break. The hard evidence for the author's position just isn't there, says Josh. In fact, the authors themselves all but admit that they have read into the Gospel accounts what they desired to see. And this is a quote from the authors now. We were seeking fragments, moreover, of a very precise character, fragments that might attest to a marriage between Jesus and the woman known as the Magdalene. Such attestations, needless to say, would not be explicit, in order to find them, we realised we would be obliged to read between the lines, fill in certain gaps, account for certain ellipses. We would have to deal with omissions, innuendos, with references that were, at best, oblique. This is what Josh says about that. The authors have given in their emphasised portion above almost the precise definition of what biblical scholars call Eisegesis, not exegesis, eisegesis, the practice of reading into a text, a thought that which is not there. Do you see the difference? Uh, we're trying to get a handle on what the text is actually trying to say to us so that we can apply it in our lives. Those authors aren't handling it well. They're trying to read something in there, read between the lines. Well, the authors of Holy Blood and Holy Grail were more concerned to handle the Word of God incorrectly. And that's the kind of approach that Paul is warning both Timothy and the future leaders and people like us against. Instead, our call is to receive the plain teaching of the Scriptures, to avoid quarrelling over words, avoid godless chatter, like talk that the resurrection somehow already happened or talk that Jesus is married to Mary Magdalene and had six children. Our call is not to get into that kind of nonsense but to please the Lord uh, with our words and handle his word carefully. We're up to point two and I'm going to have a drink. The next section we come to now is about um, being useful to the master. In verses 20 and 21, you can follow it with me. In a large house, 
there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. In these verses, Paul recognises that indeed some things are used for noble purposes, and these are very good purposes compared to some things for more mundane purposes, like thinking about the... uh, It's good to have a bin liner, isn't it? You know, for your food waste bins and things like that, biodegradable, but it's a bit mundane, really. So, yeah. And he draws on the imagery of a a well-off house. It's a large house. And in it, there are a variety of things with different values. Some of them are precious metals, silver. I think the price has gone up recently. And there's there's gold. Uh, But other things are a little less precious. Wood. Sorry, Luke. Uh, Luke's a woodworker, uh, and clay. These things are a little less precious than the precious metals. But where's Paul going with all this imagery? Well, in verse 21, uh, the challenge is to cleanse themselves from the common use and to be instruments for special purposes. These things are holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. And what uh, Paul seems to be doing here is if maybe he's thinking about the church and maybe he's thinking, you know, well, you've got on the one hand people like Timothy who are ready to serve the Lord and uh, bring glory to the Lord, handle the word correctly and encourage people to do so. And then on the other hand, you've got people like Hymenaeus and Philetus who, who seem to be part of the church, um, but they've, they've dropped the ball. And so I think he's saying there's a challenge here for the church to show their true colours, show that they... They do love the Lord. In their heart of hearts, they want to serve God and they want to serve each other. And in that way, they're, they're an instrument for noble purposes. And they've got to think about how they may start to change and continue to grow to be a bit more like Jesus. And we'll see that in the next few verses, a challenge to, uh, to actually flee wickedness and pursue good things. But this is... Um, how the Christians are to think of themselves in life as instruments for noble purposes. But is that how you think of yourself in life, as an instrument for God in life there you are, travelling through life, you're his instrument of noble purposes? Well, I notice that sometimes people in life can feel a, a little bit small, a little bit not very important at various stages of life. And so if you're thinking to yourself or have perhaps thought to yourself in the past, oh, I'm just a a small fish in a very big pond. In fact, I'm just a a bottom feeder in the great pond of life. Well, the word from God today is an encouragement to you and, and me as well. Because the good news is if, if we've received the the gift of God of forgiveness that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, if we've received that, then we are, we do have that privilege of being instruments of noble purposes. That's where we stand. And it doesn't matter who you are. If you're in Christ, you are an instrument of God for noble purposes. 
and you have the privilege, and so do I, and the responsibility of living for the glory of the Lord. Isn't it wonderful to think that we've got a higher calling in life? We don't just live to please ourselves or our families, we live to please the Lord, and God knows that. In Christ, we are useful to the Master, prepared to do any good work, and so we need to also keep thinking carefully about how we can be uh, useful to God. The Lord knows that our efforts and our service to him is not in vain and he's the one that we seek to please. It's most important that he knows that. Well, Paul now changes tack as he challenges us to be those who who work at uh, cleaning up a bit, if you like, uh, fleeing evil desires and serving the Lord. We'll see this. This is section 3 in your outlines, verse 22 to 26. Paul says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. I had a chat with a friend uh, recently about the environment, and he was saying to me, you can't have both snakes and rats. You know, if you kill the snakes, you get the rats. And uh, it was interesting. I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, yeah, you can't have both, you know, fleeing evil and righteousness. You know, if you you don't have the righteousness, you'll be into the evil. Uh, And so the challenge here is whether we're pursuing faith, love and peace, or whether we're getting into evil. We're given the options to flee and pursue. Flee the one thing and pursue the other. But what are these evil desires of youth? What do you think the evil desires of youth might be? Well, I must say, a few years ago, I was preaching on this kind of thing to the 8.30 congregation about avoiding sexual immorality and the like. I think their age was in the mid-80s for the average age in that 830 congregation. And the comments after the service were understandable as they said to me, yeah, Peter, that part of the sermon, it was a little bit lost on us. That horse bolted years ago. What could these words refer to? The youthful passions, the youthful lusts. Well, they could refer to the sensual desires associated with youth, couldn't they? And they probably do. But their range of meaning extends beyond that as well. It could be the youthful infatuation with what's novel and innovative. That's a hard word to say. New ideas, getting, getting into new ideas. Maybe that's what, there was some problems with the church with that kind of teaching. People were departing on the, 
the faith that was once entrusted and moving on to new ideas. I wonder if this now includes new ideas of moving into cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and Dogecoin. Is this a warning against things like that? Probably it doesn't extend to that. But it could even refer to uh, angry passions, youthful passions, where people, young people can be hot-headed uh, and want to yeah, have hands up ready to fight quickly. But do we have to choose? No, the challenge here is to avoid the evil desires of youth and instead to, to flee these things and instead to pursue righteousness, which is not only about um, uh, right conduct but also faithfulness within relationships. That's another dimension to righteousness. To pursue faith and love and peace these are the things that God values. These are the things that Christians uh, hopefully should be known for. Uh, if, if you're in a workplace or a community or a school, you should be known maybe to be different from, from the world where people aren't faithful. They have no love but hatred and they stir things up and aren't peaceful. God values these things and we're called to pursue them. Paul then encourages Timothy and God's people to serve the Lord by refusing to get into senseless controversies and to we're challenged to avoid fighting with people. God's servant is to be quite different from those who enjoy getting stuck into controversies. Uh, we see that from verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that, they, that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. And so in application, pleasing the Lord is going to involve avoiding fights just for their own sake and, and instead trusting God as the one who grants people repentance. It's interesting to note, though, isn't it, that God is the one who grants repentance. Often, sometimes we think if we could have a fairly persuasive argument, that might get somebody over the line to belief in Christ. But we've got to accept that uh, it's the gift of God to grant repentance, and ultimately God changes people from the inside as they hear his word. That seems to be the way, the normal way that God changes people as they, as they hear the news about Jesus and what he's done for them and see the darkness of their ways, uh, the fact that they haven't always loved God, and they, they're great, they can be grateful that Jesus has died for their sins. And so that seems to be the normal way that God changes hearts and grants repentance as people hear the message. And so God's servant shouldn't be so much focused on uh, fighting, but on, on pleasing the Lord, being kind, and gently instructing, but not fighting. But these things can be hard to do sometimes, can't they? In the heat of the moment, uh, our, our blood can be pumping when we want to uh, win an argument. But we've got to be uh, remembering to maintain some self-control and trust God in the difficult moments where there can be disagreements. Brings me to the conclusion of this sermon, friends. So you can get ready to start thinking about lunch. But let's, uh, think, let's wrap this up. So God's... Word reminds us about our responsibility not to please people, uh, 
necessarily within the community or even within the church if, if there's a collection of people that don't want to handle the word carefully. Our responsibility is to please the Lord in our words. We're called to avoid godless chatter and we're challenged to be instruments of noble purposes, to, to please the Lord and to flee evil desires, to, to identify those evil desires and go the other way and pursue the things that God values, righteousness, faith, love and peace. It's not always easy to, to go against the stream, is it? To be like a trout that swims against the stream. But God knows the, the right way for us to live and the best way for us to live is his way. And pleasing the Lord, he's the one that matters. So let's work hard at being people who seek to uh, not worry about pleasing people so much. Let's keep our heads, but let's be people this week who seek to please the Lord. And may God help us to do that. Let us close in a word of prayer. Our Lord God, um, we pray that you'd help us to be mindful of pleasing you first and foremost. Help us to think carefully about our words and how we can use our words to please you. Help us to be people who uh, flee the evil desires of youth and other wickedness. Lord, help us instead to value the things that you value, righteousness, to grow to be more like our Lord Jesus. Help us to be faithful in our relationships. And Lord, help us to be characterised by faithfulness and love and peace. Lord, we pray that you'd continue to work within our lives. Help us this week as we uh, go from here today. We pray that you'd strengthen us to be among those who want to please you because we're grateful for the forgiveness that we enjoy in Christ and we're grateful that you've made us your, your children. Lord, we thank you for this day and this time we've had to think about these things and what it means to be your people and seek, seeking to please you. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.